Good morning. My name is Mike Weeb. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Willingdon Church, but also a part of the student ministries. And it's my privilege to be able to preach this morning. Uh, But as we saw in the announcements, I do want to recommend to you to pick up an Ephesians study book. They are brand new. They're in all different languages. And uh, you probably saw them on your way in today. So I encourage you to grab one of those. Um, it's, it's by donation. Uh, I heard that the printing costs are 375, but any donation that would uh, help us offset the cost of printing would be helpful. So please make sure that you grab one of those on the way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and your word this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us, knowing that it is by your word that we, that we have life and through your son. So I pray that you would help us today to recognize our redeemer and come to him that we may have life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I need your help. I need you to tell me if I am a picky person. I don't like a lot of movies. I think today that a lot of the movies that are coming out are often really shallow They are often too predictable, and they don't require a lot of thinking. Because of this, I don't watch a lot of movies, but maybe this is just my own own thinking. When I do watch movies, especially with other people, I become the person that is really annoying during the movie. I tend to roll my eyes very loudly when things get a little bit too cheesy. I often try to predict what's going to happen next. And whether I'm right or wrong, people don't uh, invite this kind of interruption. My wife and I have made a rule. Actually, it's just my wife. My wife has made a rule that while we're watching a movie together, I'm not allowed to talk or make any sort of noises or comments about the movie until the end credits are rolling. It's because when when I hear a story or I'm watching a movie and everything seems to be solved... The need for thinking has ended, and I know they're just going to live happily ever after, so why bother finish the movie? Now, if you were to let me pick the movie, it would be a drama with heavy themes and and many layers and a twist at the end of the movie within the last 10 minutes that you couldn't have seen coming. Because for two hours, I enjoy sitting at the edge of my seat. Some people watch movies to relax. I don't. But these are the kinds of movies that you can't really watch twice. Because once you know the end of the story, you don't really sit on the edge of your seat. You're not wondering how it's all going to play out. But it's actually interesting. When you do watch a movie, any movie for that matter, for the second time or the third time, you're not worried about how it's going to end. And so you start to pick up on things you didn't notice before. Things like uh, someone says something or alludes to something things in the background, or a scene that is pivotal to the entire plot of the movie. And it's this kind of thing that we're going to see today in our text, that when we go back, knowing the end of the story, when we go back and read the story again, we can pick up on things that maybe we didn't notice before. And so today, as we have, um, we finished a series in the book of Mark, And now we're going next week to the book of Ephesians. This week, what I thought we would do is linger a bit longer on Easter. We've been led up to the death and now the empty tomb of Jesus, the resurrection. And today I want to take it one step further than the empty tomb. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 24. 
And as we enter into Luke, we're going to need to see who Luke is talking to and, and what, her, what his purposes are as he writes this book. Because it's different than we saw in Mark. Now, when it comes to pivotal scenes, Mark chapter 4, verse 16, I want to read it to you just so you get an idea of how Luke is presenting Jesus. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so this is implying, Luke is showing here that Jesus is the one to fulfill the promises of God that Isaiah penned hundreds of years earlier. Jesus is this prophecy, this promise fulfiller. Then in chapter 7, John the Baptist says, sends messengers to Jesus. He wants to know for sure, are you the one that he asks, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now notice something. The way Jesus responds is exactly the same kind of phrasing we just read in chapter 4. It says in verse 22 of chapter 7, And he answered to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So Luke is showing us that Jesus is the fulfiller of the promises of God. Then years later, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the people receive him. They're praising him. We know this as the triumphal entry. And then within a week, he is betrayed. He's on trial. He's sentenced to death. He's crucified. He dies and he's buried. Then in the beginning of Luke chapter 24, we have women unexpectedly finding Jesus' tomb empty. And they run to tell the apostles. Now, this is where our text picks up, but I want to notice a couple things before we get into it. In chapter 24, after the empty tomb is found, people have reacted. In, in verse 4, there are women who are perplexed. The apostles think it's a made-up story, and it says explicitly, they did not believe them. But Peter, in verse 12, rose and ran to the tomb and went home marveling. And so our text today picks up on two more people, their reaction and what they're thinking about all of these things that have happened to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, please look at verse 13, and we're going to jump in and out of this as we, as we go along. Verse 13 says, That very day, which is the day that they found the empty tomb, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I think Luke is pointing out here that they're leaving Jerusalem because they are disappointed. They have lost hope in the Redeemer. As we'll see in verse 21, it says, uh, we had hoped, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So them leaving Jerusalem signifies that they have no hope anymore. There's no more reason to stay in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
Now, all these things that had happened, if we were reading through the book of Luke, we would see that the the life of Jesus ends with his crucifixion and the death. And they're talking about all that had happened recently. And now what's thrown in is this empty tomb. So they're trying to make sense of all of this. And look at verse 15. While the word talking is repeated, Luke throws in the word discussing. But this word isn't just talking about it. This is more of a debate. So this adds an element to their conversation. They're not just saying, hey, remember this happened and this happened. They're trying to figure out why these things happened. They thought that Jesus was the one to fulfill the promises. And then he dies and now he has an empty tomb. So they're trying to wrestle to reconcile all these things about Jesus. How do all these fit together? And then in verse 15, it also says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they're talking about Jesus and then Jesus appears. And then And and so now they have the opportunity to talk with him, to hear from him. Now, most people, when they they see Jesus, especially the resurrected Jesus, they normally react with, with fear, with joy, or they think he's a gardener. But here he shows up and they don't even flinch. Now, when people would walk to different places, from Jerusalem to Emmaus or anywhere, really, they would walk. There were no cars in that day. And, and so foot traffic was how you get around. And there would be a lot of people walking on this road at times, and people might join each other for the conversation or for safety. So what's happening here is totally normal. But who's doing it is someone completely extraordinary. In fact, the person that they would least expect. Now, as they're walking, they're wrestling with these things. Now, definitely their sadness and their perplexity would have kept them emotionally and mentally occupied that maybe they didn't recognize Jesus. But in verse 16, it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So there's something else going on here. They weren't able to recognize him. Jesus shows up and then he starts to speak and it stops them in their tracks. But it wasn't his voice that they heard and think, it's Jesus. It was actually his question. Look at verse 17. He just asked simply, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Basically, he's saying, what are you guys talking about? He's entering into their conversation. And, And it's this question that leads them in verse 17. It says that they stood still looking sad. Maybe this, the answer to this question required a horrific uh, re- recounting of all of the events that have happened to their innocent friend, how he died, and now how possibly someone stole the body or his tomb is empty. What are they supposed to think about this? So they're, they, they're reminded that their hopes in Jesus were shattered when he died. And they don't respond to the question right away. They actually respond to their new companion. And it says in verse 18, one of them named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He's asking him, how can you not know what just happened? How do you not know what we're talking about? Everybody is talking about this. And I think he gave a face to Jesus that I think a lot of kids have given their parents. And I think this is for every generation. 
when as a kid you're talking to your parent and you make this reference to maybe a video that everybody has seen or a a phrase that everybody says and your parents have no idea what you're talking about and then you give them that face like what what planet are you from how can you everybody knows about this I think that's the face that Cleopas gives to Jesus because he's leaving Jerusalem too. How can you not know? We were just there. Everybody is talking about it. Now, some are sad. Some are confused. Some are celebrating the death of Jesus, but they all know that it happened. But we can't forget something. We can't forget that Luke has stated Jesus is the one who came to them. So we know who it is, but these two men don't. And it's interesting to think about uh, the irony that's happening here. These two men are talking about Jesus. And then Jesus appears to them. And now Jesus is listening to them talk about Jesus to Jesus. And, and, And they have no idea. And Cleopas asks him, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened there in these days? And Jesus is thinking, Probably. Uh, I think I'm the only one who knows what's happened there in these days. But instead of saying that, he asks the question. He says, what things? And like a great small group leader, instead of passing out the answer, he draws them in with another question. And so far, we haven't been able to get into the minds of these two people. We've seen that they were sad. We know that they're confused, that they're trying to make sense of everything. But here in their response, how they describe Jesus and what happened to him, we begin to get a picture of who they believe Jesus to be. So in response to Jesus' question, they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So this is their description of Jesus, who they believe Jesus to be. But notice something. If they did before, they don't elevate Jesus above being a man, a human being. They call him Jesus of Nazareth and a man. But they do call him a prophet. They, they might have referred to, as Luke records in his, in his gospel, it says, his mighty deeds and word before God and all the people. They may have been remembering what, what, we, what we hear in Luke as Jesus doing miracles, that he healed paralytics, he healed withered hands, he even raised someone from the dead. They may remember how he spoke with authority and that he forgave sinners and that he even corrected the religious leaders. They may remember that he was pleasing in the sight of God, that at his baptism and his transfiguration, God declares that he is pleased with him. And they may have referred to how he was pleasing to all the people, that the people would get up early in the morning, go to the temple to hear him teach. And even though they might have thought that Jesus was a great man, his life ends no differently than a man's because he died. In verse 20, they, just, they say this, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Now this statement is the source of their sorrow because they had hoped that Jesus was the one, but the moment that Jesus' body died, their hopes died too. Verse 21 But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, implying we did hope, but he died. And we no longer have that hope. 
but it doesn't stop there. After they review the life of Jesus saying, I think he's the one. They review the death of Jesus and they confirm he's not the one. And then they review the reports of the empty tomb. It says in verse 21, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so it seems that the addition of the empty tomb is not enough to get them to believe. It says in verse 22 that they were amazed, but this is not belief. They're still leaving Jerusalem. They're still sad and they still have no hope. And this is the piece of the puzzle. The death of Jesus, the one in whom they thought they could hope, who would be the redeemer of Israel, he dies. And that threw everything off. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with the death of Jesus? Does this confirm that he's not the one? Or does this confirm that he is the one? How do we recognize Jesus? If he's to come and fulfill all of these things, and so Luke has set the tension here, and the readers are on the edge of their seats, they now have to, have to ask the question, will these two men believe and recognize Jesus as their redeemer? Or will they give up hope and not see him? Now, I'm aware that there is a lot more going on in this passage, and there's a story that continues here. But I thought instead of going shallow on a bunch of different things, I want to go deep on one thing. So today I want to focus on the response that Jesus gives to these two men. After they've interpreted these events, Jesus begins to speak. And I think it's a question that we've all wondered before. These men are asking the question, was Jesus just a man? Was he more than a man? Was he a prophet who spoke from God? Or was he just a brilliant teacher, an innocent victim? Or was he the son of God, the one who would come to fulfill all of the promises that God had given in the Old Testament? But let me say this. The Bible presents the death and resurrection of Jesus as the turning point of the entire scriptures. It seems that everything points towards that. And once it happens, everything points back to that. And so what we do even us today, what we do with the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the lens through which we see him and how we respond to him. And so the focus today is why do Christians believe in a crucified Jesus for salvation? So these two men here, they're not going to figure this out without some help. And so this is where we get to the point where, where Jesus responds. He's not asking questions anymore. He's giving answers. And so verse 25, read with me. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, just stop for a moment and think about this. God, the creator of everything, has everything he's created at his disposal. He can do whatever he wants. 
And when it comes to people recognizing Jesus, he could just write it in the sky for everyone to see. He could today take every website and every TV channel and change it to declare the truth about who Jesus is. He could just force everybody to believe. But he doesn't. And even in this case, the resurrected Jesus is sent to these two men. And he doesn't just show up and say, hey guys, it's me, believe. He takes them and points them to the scriptures. Because the scriptures help them recognize Jesus. We wouldn't have done it this way. But God does. Knowing then that these two men were Jewish, they grew up learning the scriptures, even memorizing the scriptures. And then Jesus calls them fools for not being able to understand what the scriptures had said. There's enough in there that they should have recognized Jesus. And then he calls them slow of heart to believe, which means they, just not, they, weren't, they weren't able just to not understand Jesus. They weren't able to believe, although they should have. He calls them slow of heart to believe. They should have understood so they didn't, and they're fools. And they should have believed, but they didn't. So they're unbelieving fools. And they would have known the scriptures. And so if you're taking notes, the first point is Christians trust in the crucified Jesus for salvation because in the Bible, God provides knowledge to understand and believe in him. Jesus declares that they should have known how? Why can Jesus demand this of them? Because they knew the scriptures. And this includes us today. We have the scriptures, which God uses for a purpose. Let me show you. 2 Timothy 3.15 and 16. It says, The sacred writings, which are the 66 books in the Bible that we have today, are able to make you wise for salvation. Meaning that we are able to read and in this book to understand and believe that there is a way for salvation from our sins. And how does that come? We keep reading. Through faith in Christ Jesus. So this entire book is pointing us to be saved in a specific person by faith. That is Jesus Christ. But how do we know that we can believe this book? Men wrote this down. How do we know it's undeniably trustworthy? We'll keep reading. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. This means that the words in this book are from the mouth of God. So it carries the same significance, the same weight, the same authority as if God were speaking himself. When we disobey scripture, we're disobeying God. That when we read scripture, whether it's at church or at home or on the bus, it is the, the words of God. And therefore, there, it is undeniably trustworthy because it is from his own mouth. A source from which no lie has ever been issued. And all this is significant because this means that Christianity, the gospel, is not based upon feelings. It's based upon truth, things that we can read in this book we don't feel close to God and therefore we are close to God. We don't feel saved and therefore we are. We believe the truth. Christianity is based upon knowledge. Why else would God have given us this book to read and to understand and to believe? 
Christianity is based upon reality. Why else would he have recorded events in history in this book for us to know? And Christianity is based upon truth. Why else does it matter what Christians believe? And this shows us why the incarnated Jesus read the scriptures, taught the scriptures, interpreted the scriptures, fulfilled the scriptures, and the resurrected Jesus points back to the scriptures. Because in them, God has provided all of the necessary knowledge to understand and believe that salvation is through the crucified Jesus. So these two men who had hoped that Jesus was the redeemer of Israel. They were, they were on the right track. They, they looked at Jesus' life, his, his words, his deeds, and they said, this is him. But they got caught up on something, his death. So how are they going to make sense of this? They were on the right track, and how did they get there? It's because they knew the scriptures. And the scriptures are more than just the history of the Jewish people. It's the history of all of mankind since the beginning of time. And we see in the scriptures that there is this one, this this Messiah that would come, this anointed one who would come and fulfill the promises of God that have yet to be fulfilled. And here, these, these two men refer to him as the redeemer, the one who would redeem Israel. And so we have to understand what the Messiah is and also a redeemer. Now, in the Bible, there are 1,189 chapters. And it only took three before God's perfect creation was broken. We see that there isn't a mistake, though. God doesn't just crumple it all up, throw it away, and say, I'm going to start over. He doesn't hit edit undo and say, you know what, that didn't happen. Let's, let's try that again. He initiates a plan to fix the problem of sin. We see this in Genesis 3.15. God curses the serpent who tempted the woman in the garden, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from the moment sin entered the world, God initiates a plan to crush the tempter through one of the children of Eve. And so, they wonder, which child will it be? Was it Cain? No. Was it Abel? No. Was it any of her children? No. So it must be someone else coming down through their descendants. And as time goes on, the scriptures began to grow. God begins to reveal more and more to get a bigger picture of who this one would be. And we see in Deuteronomy 18 that it would be a prophet like Moses We see in 2 Samuel 7, it would be a king like David. And in Psalm 110, it would be a priest like Melchizedek. That he would be a triumphant ruler, overthrowing all of his enemies and ruling for forever. Which brings the problem of the death of Jesus. Because when he dies, they think it's not him. But the problem is they didn't have the full picture. They thought that at the time that Jesus was on the scene, they thought if this is the one, he's going to overthrow our oppressors, which would be the Romans. And for hundreds of years, they'd been under the rule of other nations. So they thought he's going to come and overthrow them and set up his kingdom and we will submit to him and he will rule for forever on the earth. And they were on the right track. But then comes in this idea of a redeemer, 
Now, when it comes to a redeemer, they, they took this idea from the Messiah's purpose, what he would come to do. But when we think about redemption or redeeming, we often think about coupons, which isn't the right idea here. So let's say, let me give you a picture. Let's say that there's a family that owes a million dollars, which they cannot afford. They've actually borrowed the money, which is why they're in debt. The, the man who came and lent them the money, he comes back and says, I need you to pay me back now. The family says, well, we can't. We need more time. We, and they beg and they plead. And the man stands firm and says, I need my money. So the family does what they can do. They decide to give their 16-year-old son to this man, to go live with him and work for him, doing whatever it takes to pay off the family's debt. In the meantime, while the son is gone, the family is looking for, for help. They, they make a video and post it online. They're asking family and friends for help. And over time, let's say this family gets enough money to pay off the remaining debt. And he, the father now goes with this money to the moneylender and says, here is the rest of your payment. I need my son back. And at that moment, where before the son basically was not his own anymore, he had to go and buy him back. And that is the picture. He goes and redeems his son. He takes back what is his, but he has to pay. And so if we were in a classroom, there would be the word redemption on the board. And there would be three lines that come out of it that we need to identify. The first thing is we have to identify the item, or in this case, the person that is being redeemed, that is being bought back. And in our example, it's the son. The second thing is we need to understand who we're buying it from. And in this case, it's the moneylender. The third thing is that we have to understand what the payment is that satisfies, in this case, the moneylender, that he would say, okay, I will, I will give you him back. What is the payment? And in this case, it's the money that was owing that was left over. Now let's take this and look at how the Bible presents redemption. The Bible says that the item to, buy, to be bought back is you and me because sin has created an immeasurable debt that we owe because we have disobeyed God. There is a, a distance there now and we owe it to him. And the, the one who we have to pay, a lot of people think it's, it's Satan that we have to pay to, to get us back. It's actually God. We didn't disobey Satan. We disobeyed God. And so our debt is with him. And there will come a day where he says, it's time to pay me back. And we will not be able to pay him back ourselves. So what is the payment? The third thing, what is the payment that would satisfy God to give us up, to give us, take us from his wrath to being free from our debt? And it is a substitutionary death. Now, if you have sinned, we all have sinned. And if we are to die for our own sin, all we did was die. We have not dealt with our sin. The sin still remains. So what we need is someone else. Someone who is perfect. Someone who has not sinned. Not even in a thought. We need someone like that. That person does not deserve to die. So therefore they can die for someone else. And that is why we need a substitutionary death. Someone who can die in our place. And this is where Jesus comes in. This is what redemption looks like in Scripture. And look at how 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, explains it. It says, For our sake, 
for our sake. He, being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That is the picture of redemption. A price was required. Now, a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus knew that the wrath of God was coming upon him on the cross. And he goes to the garden and he prays. It says, it says in Mark 14, 35, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He prays multiple times and afterwards it is confirmed to him that it's not going to change. We know that God could change it, but he doesn't because it's necessary that Jesus die for his, for his people. God would not have sent his son to die for enemies, to die for sinners after living a perfect life if he didn't have to. But it was necessary. This is the way that redemption works. A price had to be paid. And so in, the, in your outline, this is why Christians trust in the crucified Jesus for salvation. Because in the Bible, God purchased redemption completely through him. And when Jesus asks you this question in verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? How do you respond? Was it necessary? Was it part of God's plan? The scriptures make it clear that it was the only way to be redeemed, to be saved. And without the satisfying payment of Jesus' death for our sin, on our cross, we cannot be redeemed. Nobody can be redeemed. So let's go back to these two men in our story. They were on the right track with this Messiah, but their picture that they had gathered from the Old Testament was not full. They missed some things, and I want to show you this. Go back to Genesis 3.15. The redemption is there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent's head will be bruised. But notice the Messiah's heel is bruised as well. So God's plan for redemption includes two wounds. And notice how they're different. For the promised one, it would be a wounded heel, which he can recover from. But for the serpent, it would be a wounded head, which would prove to be fatal. Now, like many times you see what happens to Jesus, we can go back and see the story again and find more of the greater picture of the plan of God in knowing how it ends. So let's watch this movie for the second time or the third time. Throughout the Old Testament, the required payment for redemption is there. Uh, Genesis 3, same chapter, it says, after God's promise, this, was, this is my explanation of it, after God's promise to crush the serpent... An innocent animal dies to cover the two original sinners. He uses a dead animal. He kills an animal and clothes them with the animal's skin. Genesis 22, up on the mountain, where Abraham has his arm raised, knife in hand, ready to sacrifice his son. But the Lord stops him and provides a ram to die in the place of his son Isaac. In Exodus, it's the 10th plague where uh, that would kill all of the firstborn males. And Jesus, uh, God institutes the Passover celebration where they take a, a, an innocent, pure, and spotless lamb 
and they kill it and they take the blood and they put it on the doorposts that would save, that would spare the family that's inside that home. In Leviticus, it's the sacrificial system that is how God dealt with their sin. He provided a way to deal with it. They come, they say, I've sinned. And whatever sin they had, an animal, an innocent animal would die and, and take the punishment that they deserve. But they had to do this over and over and over again, which alludes to a once and for all sacrifice that would one day come and do away with all of these sacrifices that would be enough to satisfy God. And so the one who will fulfill God's promise of overcoming the serpent is designed for him to be wounded as well. There would be a crown in the future, but not before a crucifixion. And so we see this as we look back. We see Jesus, and now we look back in the Old Testament that Jesus is the animal that was killed to cover your shame and your sin. Jesus is the ram that was provided. Instead of you dying, the ram dies. Jesus is the pure and spotless lamb that, that dies. And the blood covers you so that you are spared. And Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that we needed that did away with all the other animal sacrifices because it was enough to satisfy God. And so the truth is, to spend eternity with Jesus, who today reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father over all created things and will do so forever, we need to be redeemed from our sins. We are slaves to sin, but we can be redeemed. There's been a death, a payment that God will accept on your behalf. And one of the astounding things about Jesus' death is that it's already happened. That God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death or by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The emphasis, this emphasizes why in the notes I wrote, God purchased redemption completely through him. Meaning that there is nothing else that contributes to your redemption. Nothing that you are contributes to your redemption. Nothing that you have, nothing that you do. The only thing is Jesus Christ crucified for you in your place on the cross. And this is why we trust in him for salvation. Now we come to verse 27. The, I think it's a place where we all would have loved to be, to be in this conversation where it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It would have been amazing to be a part of that conversation. Well, really not even a conversation, just to listen to that, to be there. And the last thing I want to focus on is that Jesus is the center and the focus of the entire scriptures. That everything points to him. The Old Testament is basically saying he's coming. The gospels are saying he's here. And the rest of the New Testament says he's come and he's coming again. And we are to see the direction in which it points. That it is Jesus. There is confirmation there. Even though he dies, he, we can see and recognize that he is the one. 
The, the New Testament explains in, in uh, a few different places. I'll only read a, uh, a couple. Romans 3 says, redemption came by Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 says, to redeem those under the law. This is why it came. Uh, how did it come? Galatians 3, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Titus 2 says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And Colossians 1 summarizes it really well. It says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's actually a difficult thing to read through the Bible and not see Jesus as the focus, to see Jesus as the redeemer. It all points to him. And so Christians trust in the crucified Jesus for salvation because in the Bible, God points everyone constantly and directly to him. The entire Bible, as I said before, pivots on who Jesus is, the death and the resurrection. And it should confirm that, yes, it is Jesus. He is the one to redeem Israel. He is the one to redeem sinners. It shows the necessity of his death and why we should trust in a crucified Jesus for salvation. Now, I know that for some of you, it's not as simple as just opening the scriptures and seeing Jesus everywhere. All these allusions and how it describes him. I know it's not as simple as a magic formula that just highlights all of these places in your Bible as you read and shows you where Jesus is. And I know it's not as simple as buying the right curriculum that would show you every place that Jesus is alluded to. However, I do know that it's more like watching a movie for the second time and the third time and the fourth time and you begin to see it unfold deeper and more richly because you know the ending and you can recognize Jesus throughout the scriptures. So read your Bible. Read it again and again and again. This is the word of God. Don't ever think that you found Jesus enough. He is everywhere in these pages. But hear the warning of Jesus. Not to just stop at the scriptures. He says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so the Bible is the finger of God pointing towards a crucified Jesus that you would be saved. So recognize your Redeemer and come to him that you may have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for the kind of God that you are, that you would have given us the scriptures to not just know and believe, but that point us to the one in whom we can be redeemed, the one who came to fulfill all of your promises, the one who is your son. And I pray today that you would show people Help them to recognize who their Redeemer is, to trust in him and not to get hung up on his crucifixion and wonder, why did he die? He wasn't the one. But to see that it was necessary that you die for us. That when we see the cross, we are not horrified only, but that we are filled with the grace and the love that we need 
to be saved through Jesus Christ. Help us to know your scriptures, to be people of the word, but not stop there with knowledge, but come to you that we may have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.